check out this promo from a fellow podcaster. Hi, welcome to The Jury Room, a true crime podcast. My name is Kevin, and I will be your host on this journey. We'll be covering some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever be committed against humanity. We will be covering cannibalistic serial killers, decades-old unsolved mysteries, cold cases, and missing person cases. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Please make sure you go, like, and leave a review. Now, back to the Murder Bucket Podcast. Hi. Hello. What's up? How's it hanging? I appreciate you joining me today for another episode of Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's get started. Today's episode is part two of the Sylvia Likens murder case. I will be talking about the trial, convictions, parole, and afterlife. On December 30th, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury brought down first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Jr., Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. They were all charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting a culmination of fatal injuries to Sylvia with premeditated malice. Three weeks prior, Stephanie was released from custody upon a writ of habeas corpus bond with her attorney, contending that the state had insufficient evidence to support any murder conviction against her. Stephanie did waive her immunity for any potential impeding prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and others that were charged. All those indicted were evaluated by several psychiatrists and were found mentally competent to stand trial. The trial started on April 18, 1966, and the prosecution successfully argued that all the defendants should be tried together as they were ultimately charged with acting in concert in their collective crimes against Sylvia. Gertrude pled not guilty by reason of insanity, while the others claimed they had been pressured into participating in Sylvia's torment, abuse, and torture. One of the first witnesses to testify was Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis. He went into detail of the pain that Sylvia had suffered stating that her fingernails were broken backwards, numerous deep cuts and punctures covered much of her body, and that her lips were essentially in shreds due to her having repeatedly bitten and chewed them. He also stated that she had been in an acute state of shock for between two to three days prior to her death. Her body bore no evidence of sexual molestation. Jenny Likens testified for two days against all five defendants, stating that each had inflicted physical and emotional abuse toward her sister and that she had done nothing to provoke the assaults. 
She went on to say the abuse that she and Sylvia had endured started two weeks after they began to live in the Banaszewski household and that Sylvia's abuse began to escalate. Sections of Jenny's testimony were later corroborated by that of Randy Lepper, who stated he had once witnessed Sylvia crying, but she had no actual tears. He also testified to having witnessed Stephanie strike her really hard after her mother ordered her to remove her clothes in his presence. He then smirked after confessing to beating her himself between 10 to 40 separate instances. On May 10th, a Baptist minister named Roy Julian testified to having known a teenage girl was being abused in the house, but he chose not to report it because he was informed by Gertrude that Sylvia had made advances toward men for money. On the same day, Judy Duke testified to witnessing salt being rubbed into Sylvia's sores on her legs until she screamed. She also testified that she witnessed Shirley rip open Sylvia's blouse, to which Richard Hobbs made the casual remark, everyone's having fun with Sylvia. The following day, Gertrude testified in her own defense, denying any responsibility for her prolonged abuse, torment, and death. She claimed that her children and the neighborhood kids must have committed the acts in her home. She described it as a madhouse. She claimed that she was preoccupied by her own ill health and depression to control her children. Gertrude stated that she started to spank Sylvia, but was emotionally unable to finish. She also denied any knowledge of her enduring beatings, scaldings, brandings, or burnings. Richard Hobbs was called to testify in his own defense on May 13th. He told the courtroom that he witnessed Gertrude etching into Sylvia's abdomen before she asked him to finish. He was adamant that the section of branding he had inflicted had been very light. He further testified that he believed Sylvia would not be at home on October 26th, as Gertrude informed him that she intended to get rid of her the day before. Mary broke down while she was on the stand. She admitted to heating the needle that was used to carve into Sylvia's abdomen. She testified that on one occasion, her mother sat and crocheted while watching a neighborhood girl attack Sylvia. She added that the five defendants did in fact physically and mentally torment her, but it was mostly her mother and sister. Another witness stated that she sat close to Paula on a church bus and overheard her bragging about breaking her own wrist due to the severity of a beating that she had inflicted on her and that she was trying to kill her. A court-appointed doctor testified on behalf of the prosecution. He was questioned by Leroy New as to the interviews and assessments that he conducted with Gertrude. He stated that she had been evasive and very uncooperative. He fully believed that she was sane and was in control of her actions. He was subjected to over two hours of intense cross-examination by Gertrude's lawyers. Marjorie Wessner delivered the state's closing arguments on behalf of the prosecution. She recounted the continuous mistreatment Sylvia endured before her death, emphasizing that at no point had she provoked any of the defendants or received any medical care. Wessner described Sylvia's abuse as stomach-wrenching and compared it to her treatment to prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. William Urbecker was the first defense attorney to deliver the closing arguments before the jury. 
He tried to portray his client as being insane and unable to appreciate the severity or criminality of her actions. He stated, I condemn her for being a murderess. That's what I do. But I say she's not responsible because she's not all here. He went on to say, if this woman is sane, put her in the electric chair. She has to be crazy or she wouldn't have permitted that. You'll live with the consequences for the rest of your lives if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. Forrest Bowman began his closing argument by attacking the decision of the prosecution to seek the death penalty for juveniles, stating, I would like to have an hour of the jury's time to explain why 16 and 13-year-olds should not be put to death. He repeatedly emphasized his client's ages, stating each was only guilty of assault and battery. George Rice began stating that Paula and the other defendants should not have been tried together. He claimed the evidence presented against his client did not equate to her actual guilt of the murder. He pleaded with a jury to return a verdict of not guilty on a girl who had gone through the indignity of being tried in an open court. James Netter was the last defense attorney to share his closing arguments. He attempted to portray Richard Hobbs as having a follower-type personality who had acted under the control of Gertrude, suggesting that he had not carved into Sylvia's abdomen at Gertrude's request he would be a state's witness. He requested a verdict of not guilty by saying Hobbs was only guilty of immaturity and gross lack of judgment, but not of the crime of murder. Leroy New directly addressed criticism he had earlier received from Forrest Bowman in his closing argument regarding the prosecution's cross-examination of children, stating that the prosecutor's job is to present the evidence to the best of our ability. Each one of the five defendants had the responsibility to leave Sylvia alone. We had the responsibility to bring all the evidence we could find that could explain this crime. All we hear is whining appeal, anything but blame where blame belongs. He then speculated as to the reason Sylvia did not try to escape prior to the abuse escalating in the final weeks of her life, stating, I think she trusted in man. I think she did not believe these people would do this and continue to do this. He concluded by emphasizing the defendant's unison in their collective mistreatment of Sylvia, before asking the jury to dismiss arguments regarding who may have actually inflicted the final blow. Every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death, he said, and that was testimony. The subdural hematoma was the ultimate blow. This is the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen, and I hope will ever see. He then stated not a shred of evidence had been produced indicating any defendant was suffering from a form of mental illness. New again requested the death penalty for each defendant, stating to the jury, The issue here is not about the electric chair or a hospital, but about law and order. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court of jury? If you go below the death penalty in this case... You will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forevermore be on our souls. The trial lasted for 17 days before the jury retired to consider its verdict. 
On May 19th of 1966, after deliberating for only eight hours, the jury gave the following verdicts. Gertrude was found guilty of first-degree murder and recommended a sentence of life in prison. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Gertrude and her children burst into tears and tried to console each other, while Richard and Coy remained impassive. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula were sentenced to life in prison. Richard, Coy, and John Jr. each received sentences of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. In September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula, stating that Judge Saul Isaac Robb had denied motions that were submitted by their defense counsel at their original trials to have the venue changed and them to have separate trials. This ruling stated that the circumstances regarding the atmosphere created during their trial impeded any chance of either of them receiving a fair trial. They were both retried in 1971. Paula instead opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face the retrial. She was sentenced to serve a term of 2 to 21 years in prison. Despite unsuccessfully attempting to escape prison twice, she was released in December of 1972. Gertrude, however, was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Over the course of 14 years, Gertrude became known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Women's Prison. She worked in the prison sewing shop and was known as somewhat of a den mother to the younger female inmates, becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname Mom. News of Gertrude's impending parole hearing created an uproar throughout Indiana. Jenny and other immediate family members protested against her release. Members of two anti-crime groups traveled to Indiana to oppose her potential parole and publicly support the family. They initiated a sidewalk picket campaign, and over the course of two months, they collected over 40,000 signatures from the citizens of Indiana to try and stop her parole. During the hearing, Gertrude stated that she had wished Sylvia's death could be undone, but minimized her responsibility, stating, I'm not sure what role I had in her death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. Taking Gertrude's good conduct in prison into account, the parole board marginally voted in favor of her release. By the time of Gertrude's release on December 4th of 1985, she had changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, a combination of her middle name and maiden name, and described herself as a devout Christian. Upon her release, Gertrude relocated to Iowa. She never fully accepted responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged torment and death. She insisted her actions were the results of the medication that she was on at the time. She lived in relative obscurity until her death due to lung cancer in June of 1990 at the age of 61. Jenny clipped Gertrude's obituary out of a newspaper and mailed it to her mother, with an accompanying note that read, Some good news. Dangled Gertrude died. I am happy about that. Paula was paroled in 1972 and assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years in Iowa and changed her name to Paula Pace. 
She concealed the truth regarding her criminal history when applying for the position, but was ultimately fired in 2012 when the school district discovered her true identity. She is reportedly married with two children, and the daughter that she gave birth to in 1966 was adopted. The murder charges against Stephanie were dropped after she agreed to testify against the defendants. She assumed a new name and became a schoolteacher. She is married with children and currently lives in Florida. Following the arrest of their mother, Mary, Shirley, and James were put into the foster care system. Their surnames were changed to Blake in the late 1960s after their father had regained custody. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each served less than two years before being granted parole in 1968. Richard died of lung cancer four years after his release. Coy Hubbard remained in Indiana and never changed his name. Throughout his life, he was repeatedly in prison for various criminal offenses. On one occasion, he was charged with the 1977 murders of two young men, but he was acquitted. Shortly after the January 2007 premiere of the crime drama film An American Crime, Hubbard was fired from his job. He died of a heart attack in Indiana on June 23rd of 2007 at the age of 56. John Jr. lived under the alias of John Blake. Several years after his release, he issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a more severe term of punishment. He stated later that he enjoyed the attention that Sylvia's murder had brought him. He died of diabetes in 2005. Ginny married an Indianapolis native and had two children. She repeatedly emphasized no blame should be placed on either of her parents for placing her and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude. She stated that all her parents had done was trusting Gertrude's promise to actually take care of them. She unfortunately died in 2004 from a heart attack. Elizabeth Likens died in 1998 and Lester Likens died in 2013. The house in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered stood vacant for many years after her death and the arrest of her tormentors. The property gradually became dilapidated. Although there were discussions held in relation to the possibility of purchasing and rehabilitating the house, the funds to complete the project were never raised. The house itself was demolished on April 23rd of 2009, and the site where the house once stood is now a church parking lot. In June of 2001, a six-foot-tall memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens' life and legacy in Willard Park in Indianapolis. This dedication was held by several hundred people, including members of her family. The memorial itself is inscribed with these words. This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. A poem inscribed upon the granite memorial formerly dedicated to Sylvia Likens reads, I see a light, hope, I feel a breeze, strength, I hear a song, relief, let them through, for they are the welcomed ones. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on social media to get notifications when a new episode airs. 
You can find me on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, Instagram at Murd Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd.